is knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 289. Jason Lingren is with me, and Mr. Wayne McCroy is back. We're going to take a break from uh, the craziness that is the world we live in right now, kind of, I guess, and cover Star Wars. And actually, I'm not even sure if we're going to go beyond the initial movie or the overarching ideas. But before I get Jason in here, maybe I should say, may the farce be with you, because it is. And to cue up something we covered recently, Mr. George Lucas was, what, roughly eight years before Star Wars? First one, I think it's 77. and 69, he is filming the end, the fall, the stage taking a part of the love-peace movement at Altamont Speedway where the Rolling Stones so ingeniously hired the Hells Angels to do security for a concert. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a very cold good morning to you. Ah, It's not too bad for us here. I think we're going to hit 40 today. That's unheard of uh, where I'm at. We should be frozen, but we haven't been. Clearly, global warming is going to kill us all. But uh, do we have anything here? Global warming, yeah. No, let's do some wars in the stars. All right. Welcome, Wayne. Hello, gentlemen. Good to be back here again. Yeah, here we go again. Um, anything you want to add in? You want to tell people where to find you? Mention your books and stuff before we uh, take apart Star Wars? Yeah, sure. We could go ahead and do that. Uh, if anybody wants to reach me, I could be reached at alchemicaltechrevolution at gmail.com. Uh, check out my YouTube channel, which is also called Alchemical Tech Revolution. I've been posting uh, a lot of breakdowns on very old books of the Masonic variety and various other uh, secret society type books and works like that, giving people a breakdown on the things encoded there. So uh, check out the channel there. I I seem to uh, have picked up a a good bit of listenership there because of these breakdowns of the books. So people are interested in that stuff. Check it out. Also, I have books available through Amazon or through pretty much any other fine book retailer at this point. Three of them out now, The Alchemical Tech Revolution being my first book. My second book was called The Autism Epidemic, Transhumanism's Dirty Little Secret. And my most recent book is called Cybernetic Messiah, Building the Antichrist System. And uh, those are available now uh, anywhere where you buy books. And I would appreciate if people would check those out. Uh, I also have a Facebook page called Files from the Conspiratorium, where I do post uh, a lot of stuff relating to the uh, recent news articles and things of that nature. So people could check me out at those contact points. Better man than me, man. I can't look at the news without taking a hot shower immediately. Um, it's gotten <laughs> so scummy up in here. But all right, that's that. I think it's on you, Jason. Right. So we're going to talk about Star Wars long before the mouse ever got its grubby paws on it. The official story of how and when George Lucas came up with the concept of Star Wars is convoluted and riddled with inconsistencies. Multiple contradictory versions of Lucas's narrative of the creative process of how he came up with the Star Wars saga are circulating in the mainstream entertainment media. Fans and producers alike will admit that there is a lot of misinformation circulating about the origins of Star Wars, and some people maintain that this has been done deliberately. Why is the origin of this movie franchise shrouded in mystery? Precisely because of what it esoterically represents. You know, at some point, the three of us should get together and do an episode on the new director switchover from, I don't know, what do we call it? The golden age directors. All those directors that were getting old at the end of the 60s who had brought Hollywood to where it was replaced by a very select few directors who became 
the whole new face of Hollywood. You got your Spielbergs, your Lucases. Um, what's the dude's name who did uh, Godfather there? Coppola. Yeah, Coppola. Everyone knows who I'm talking about. By the way, in his family is Nicolas Cage, who used to be known as Nicolas Coppola. It's all uh, insider baseball. And if you look carefully at the narrative, you can see how it's queued up. But it's this bunch of directors, Lucas, that we're going to cover here in Star Wars that changed the whole face of Hollywood into the kind of blockbuster mentality where maybe the substance of a movie no longer mattered. It was all about box office. But let's jump back over. You want to take it, Wayne? We're doing Lucas and I assume mostly the 77 Star Wars. Yeah, that's uh, basically when I wrote up this little transcript here for us as an outline to go through. Uh, I had in mind basically the first movie, but we will touch upon details in some of the ancillary movies that came about because of it. Because originally, from what the, the official story is, is Lucas never had any idea that it was going to take off the way it did. So even though he had these different scripts written out for the different aspects of the story at that point, he never thought they would get to film or, or get to theater or get to release. So basically we'll see as the saga continues on into the various other movies, some of the narratives flip a little bit and like some of the, uh, the characterizations kind of invert from where they were. And we'll talk about that later as we get down the notes here. Uh, you'll see that I, I haven't done much research into Lucas's background, but I have no doubt that he had some access to some of this more esoteric type knowledge, if he, whether he's a Freemason or or one of those type groups, or he belongs to one of those type groups. I, I'm not 100% sure, but there can be no doubt in my mind, just based upon the works that he cites, where he talks about uh, being uh, inspired by Joseph Campbell's uh, work uh, to do this kind of stuff. He definitely had his fingers into some of the uh, more esoteric type writings that were around. So uh, I have no doubt that he understood uh, many of these mysteries. And in fact, that's kind of what I titled this whole set of notes that I wrote is the mysteries of star Wars, because this is what a lot of this encodes the ancient mysteries from the ancient mystery schools. And it's kind of enveloped into this modern day uh, type mythology, this space age mythology, so to say. By the way, since we're going to talk about mysteries, let's make sure to point out that George Lucas openly admits that his mentor in the directing world was none other than Stanley Kubrick. There's a couple things here. It's almost, you know, the, this is based on archetypes. So there's the Joseph Campbell crossover. So basically what you're doing is you're tying into the psyche of people who have had these archetypes probably at least since the oldest Greek myths um, and other things like that. But the whole narrative that he didn't know it was going to do very well it doesn't wash. Where'd your where'd your budget come from? As an example, we can take Coppola, right? So he makes Godfather. I had a girlfriend whose father went to Vietnam, and the one thing when he finally got back, and he did multiple tours, he said when he left, the Godfather was in the certain theater. When he got back, it was in the certain theater. Um, that's what he remembered. But so Coppola, who's already got his chops, he did the Godfather, um, which was wildly successful. Um, he can't get funding for Apocalypse Now. There's all these stories about, oh, I had to you know, mortgage everything I had, and I didn't even have the end written. There's all this tale. So I would ask simply, if this was a nothing private personal story that you didn't know was going to do well, who funded it, right? There had to be backing for, for what we see. As a matter of fact, I was live, and I went to this when it opened in 77, and you'd never seen anything like it in terms of special effects. It was a whole new 
a whole new way of doing things. So the funding was clearly there. So what I do know about that is George Lucas had success, a very good success with American Graffiti. Despite that, he was turned down by a lot of the major studios. There's a universal letter floating around of them declining to pick up Star Wars, the joke's on them, and it wasn't until 20th Century Fox picked it up. The initial budget for Star Wars in 70s money is said to be somewhere around 10 to $12 million. So even back then, not a huge amount, but this is long before the age of the massive zillion-dollar blockbuster movies. That comes later with Spielberg. Spielberg is credited as being the father of the blockbuster um, or one of the fathers of the blockbuster. But in 70s money, 10 to 12 million is a crap load of money. Anyhow. Yeah, so you can see how uh, Lucas was kind of set in this position to uh, make, make this impact on people. Uh, whether they say, you know, behind the scenes or not, he was turned down by this studio or that studio. Eventually, somebody saw the uh, script there and thought, hey, there's there's something important in here that we need to get out to mass market in the public. So that is why they they made the arrangements and gave him his budget and got him rolling with this. Because if they didn't believe in Lucas's ability to translate this thing to film and, uh, you know, get the story out there and to actually make money on it, they would have never ponied up that kind of money in the 1970s for something like this, because this is kind of the pre-blockbuster era. Uh, so they had some serious faith in him. And based upon just his production of American Graffiti, I don't think that would be quite enough to entice somebody to take a chance on something like this. So unless they had something else in mind with it, uh, I would say that that narrative doesn't really stand up to scrutiny when you look at it at face value. Star Wars is our modern day mythology. It is a classic retelling of the ages-old mystery teachings of antiquity, pointing to the place in the natural world where all of these archetypal stories are written in the stars, the sky clock. This film franchise has been used as a modern-day platform to convey the old secret teachings of the ancient mystery schools. Its stories have been purposefully transmuted into a new mythology, replete with all the traditional archetypes of the more ancient myths. That is why it has been adopted by our popular culture. The primal archetypes that it represents resonate with the unconscious mind. So I don't think there's any debating whether that's true. Um, there are archetypes there. Those archetypes reside in the vast majority of us, which is why it works. And an archetype tells things that matter from time immemorial. It just keeps getting wrapped into different myths and stories and allegories and teachings that's why archetypes are powerful it's almost like they, they reside within us um but there's more going on with this franchise that also tells you that it isn't just some off-the-cup lucky spin of the roulette wheel there are scenes in the later movies where the senate is basically verbatim showing you what's just happened to us all um when the evil emperor dude is taking over the world, people can go back. They're in a big round room and floaty things. Um, Jason probably knows the names of it and all better than I do. But the point is, is they're pre-echoing what's about to happen to the entire world um, and how governments are taking over this kind of thing. But when to get back, I, I don't think there's any debating that the archetypes are leveraged on here. Oh, absolutely. No doubt that the archetypes are leveraged on. And I, I think they were written in in that way on purpose. Uh, because they intended for this to be the new mythology. Basically, that, that's the thing we've discussed before on programs in the past. Things like uh, that, that book, The Changing Images of Man, how they discuss 
how the social controllers and the social programmers utilize mythology as a primary control tool for steering societal norms. So, see, that's the thing. This was intended solely to be a new mythology for people to follow and to latch onto, especially in a more secular type society, because uh, many religious traditions and stuff have kind of been sloughed off to the side in our modern society because, you know, people try to look at things more through the lens of quote-unquote science or what we would term as scientism. So this basically is lock, stock, and barrel, the religion of scientism uh, caught up in a mythology. So when you look at it from from that perspective, I mean, it definitely hits on those archetypes and it's filling all the different uh, boxes, so to say, for this thing in the modern society, which is a more secularized society that tends away from religious ideals. And it's still uh, fulfilling that role in society. So this was intended to be a mythology, right down to the number encodings. It was released in 1977. There's your mind weapon, 77. It was intended to be there. It was implanted there on purpose. And uh, whether it was intended by George Lucas or not, that's up for debate, whether that is what he knew was in store for it or, or what it was going to be utilized for later. That's open for debate. But at any rate, I, I think it's undeniable at this point that this franchise, this movie franchise has changed our culture in significant ways. It's, it's really taken hold of the minds of the people. And it's a worldwide phenomenon right now. It has been since its inception in 1977. And, you know, you could see what it was intended for. This is totally a tee up in another way that we should point out. You know, the main guy who I'm not sure, I think this is the first time he's trotted out in a big way, but I don't know for sure it's Harrison Ford. But Harrison Ford is in the canyon, isn't he, Jason? He's around the Beach Boys. He's around all these people creating, refabricating the music industry to do what they did in Laurel Canyon. Uh, Harrison Ford's in the center of that. This whole thing's a tee-up, but what were you going to say? They had to update the myths for the space age, get it away from gods and goddesses and swords and empires and things like that, and bring it into the post-Apollo era. We're talking about the mid-70s, so everybody was fresh off of all the NASA quote-unquote achievements. Well, Joseph Campbell had made... I don't even know how many decades he made a living. Um, when I was young, I had all the Campbell books, and he was one of the first people I remember who took the archetypes from all these cultures and myths and cultural things that had gone on, and he started to, I don't know what's a good way to say it, write about the similarities. Like He comes up with the hero's journey and other things that shows there's a commonality that goes through this, but he's also making known to me for the first time, there's this thing called an archetype that all this is based on. And so it's the same important information repackaged over and over, which is what you're pointing out. So now we're going to do it in space instead of the gods of Olympus or you know any other way it's been delivered. Yeah, but they still kept the swashbuckling uh, sword fighting aspect of it, too, just in a more sophisticated <laughs> hi-fi, sci-fi, high-tech way, you know, uh, with the lightsabers of yep. different colors, and the colors of the lightsabers are very telling, too. Uh, they're encoding different ideas in each and every lightsaber that these heroes and villains wield. Well, we had red and blue, didn't we? We did, and we also had green, and then in the later uh, chapters of, of the uh, the saga, we wound up with uh, orange and yellow and purple uh, as well. So, I mean, all those different colors, they, they encode many different things, and if anybody's interested to see what the colors mean, I would highly recommend that book. Uh, what is it called? The Hermetic uh, Science of Number and Color. Yeah, color, yeah. Like 
Yeah, by uh, <laughs> I can't think of the guy's name now, but I, I have that book. I've read through it several times. There's a lot of, of stuff in there, a lot of high-quality information in there. So people could actually look at these to see what each of those colors would represent and you know how it ties into the Star Wars universe and also how it ties into our world that we live in here and how it's all encapsulated in this mythos that is Star Wars, and it's the modern myth. You know, that idea actually made it into the games. I had nephews in the first, I don't know, it was probably the earliest Star Wars games on Xbox, an early version of Xbox. Uh, I don't think we'd made it to 360 yet. And uh, you could play your game and get different colored crystals and swap them in and out of your lightsaber. Oh, that's Knights of the Old Republic you're talking about. That's a great game. Yeah, so then it would tell you, you know, what this color gained you. But the the irony is uh, all these... Young minds are playing in fantasy thinking it's just fantasy, but they're actually leveraging off the value of color. It's just most people don't catch on. Right. And they're also leveraging off the value of crystals as well. Uh, It's interesting. And you know what those crystals are called in the Star Wars universe? They're kyber crystals. Mm -hmm. Kyber, K-Y-B-E-R, which is very well related to cyber uh, which being cybernetics, the the science of control, that kind of a thing. Kyber, um, kybernetes being the original word in Greek, meaning steersman or pilot. Uh, so it's all about control and, and having control over these uh, different uh, forces, so to say. That's, that's what it's uh, kind of encoding in the whole lightsaber narrative there, the kyber crystal uh, of different colors. It controls these different aspects of force or motion or things of that nature so you can see how that's all tied up in kind of this occult philosophy along right in the star wars i mean and the deeper you dig and delve into this whole star wars universe per se and all the stories and stuff around it the the more of this stuff you find just encoded in there and it's it's amazing how deep and how rich the mythology really is the hero's journey the concept heavily promoted in the modern era by joseph campbell in his book the hero with a thousand faces is a very important facet to the writing of star wars so much so that lucas himself even credits joseph campbell as an inspiration for the structure and components of the storyline was this all really solely the brainchild of george lucas or were there other things at play in the cultural phenomenon that it became I could tell you one thing, he definitely borrowed from Frank Herbert and his Dune saga because George Lucas borrows the concept of the spice and throws it in there kind of as an aside in the first movie, but it's in there. You know, you have every every reason to question this if you understand that Lucas was at Altamont filming a supposed death that was going to bring the peace, love, basically end the innocent era of America finally, uh, which happened slowly over the 60s. Uh, what are the odds? <laughs> Mr. Lucas was going to be the guy there. It's just, we have every reason to question this. And for something to come off as, oh, we didn't think this was going to be, you know, like I've seen interviews where he's claiming all the people involved are saying this is a kid's movie. Whether or not that was their impression, I would ask again, what did you think was going to happen when you got 12 million bucks to make a movie and you had to have known when you were doing all these new special effects shots with models and stuff at a level that had never been seen it actually to this day those spaceships hold up they look like spaceships or what we think they should be they had to have known where this is going how could they have not and the idea of dailies you know where they take the footage and whoever's funding or whatever whoever the big bosses are look at what you've got so far they had to have known 
when they started seeing the spaceships and other things that this was going to be a smash hit. How how could it have been otherwise? Right, especially since they were leveraging off of the uh, archetypes that are ingrained in the unconscious mind of the people. Right. Uh, we, we recognize these stories and we like relate to them. Uh, something uh, in them just resonates with us. So that they had to know is the mind hook right there. They knew the mind hook aspect of it was there. So that being the case, they should they would have known that this was going to be a major hit. Well, not only that, if I'm not mistaken, doesn't ET is it ET or, or close encounters the third kind? That that's seventy seven two, I believe. Yeah, ET I think encounters. was eighty one or eighty two. Right. Close encounters was seventy seven, I think, as well. Close Encounters is considered one of the initial blockbuster makers. Right. right. There it is. So you can see what's going on here. We have this core of the new directors who have been ushered in. And within their ushering in, there are going to be tons of other people. Like I mentioned, Nicolas Cage is going to come out of it. What's uh, Opie from uh, Andy Griffith? Ron Howard. Ron Howard's going to come out of the earlier movie about the cars in the 50s, American Graffiti. And he's going to step up and became a major force. So it's all this group of people that are being ushered in. But uh, we see Star Wars, which actually changed world culture, come out in 77. And then a movie by Spielberg as Buddy within this group of new directors pumps out Close Encounters, which I'm with you, Jason. I think it's credited as the first real blockbuster to make that model where substance of movies wasn't going to be as important as the box office she could get and the formula that comes out of that. I think Jaws is looked at as the first, and then Close Encounters followed it up very closely afterwards, both, of course, being Spielberg movies. Well, the thing about Jaws is they were convinced that the fake shark looked fake and that it was going to tank. You can go back and look at interviews with, uh, who's the guy who played Hooper in that? I can't think of his name, but the, the marine biologist guy who's been in so many movies he's actually making the rounds on the talk shows, making apologies because they're so far over budget, so far over time, and then lo and behold, it's a hit. And by the way, that whole thing is based on the Peter Benchley novel anyhow, which was a hit. That would be Richard Dreyfuss. I'm looking at it. There it is. Uh, it, there it's it is. a yeah. 1975 film and had a budget of $9 million, so not massive. And doing the conversion, I just looked up. $10 million in 1977 would be a $44 million budget today, approximately. So really, in terms of these massive special effects spectacular movies, that's not a lot of money. Well, let's look at the reality of this. So if you're going to say that the blockbuster matters because it makes a crap load of money, then you're going to start looking at how much did we spend, how much did we get back. So I guess what they start saying is we'll spend $100 million and we'll get hundred billion back or something. But my point is, is what those two movies prove star Wars and jaws is you can get in the neighborhood of 10 million and make a crop load, right? Both of them did it. Um, not only that, there's still some story and some narrative, which has left most modern movies for special effects and all the things that get people to come buy tickets or pay for streams. 472 million. Apparently I just looked it up. I didn't realize there was that much of a difference. Holy cow. A million dollars in the set. It was viewed in the 70s that once you were a millionaire, you'd made your million. That was it. You were set for life. It was a lot of money. In the 70s, I can remember when nice cars were below two grand. Easily, I can remember that. Gasoline, well under a dollar, 60, 70 cents. But the point I would make here is how is it that we can look at Jaws 
and the first Star Wars, roughly, let's just round it off at a $10 million budget and understand the amount of money that was made on simply 10 grand. So how does that get thrown out? In other words, think of all the people who are not uber rich that could pony up a million 10 guys in a room that could pony up a million a piece and go for the the gold ring. Uh, but that's not how it's done. It's based on the blockbuster thing where you're going to throw in a hundred million or whatever it is to make your movie. It makes no sense. Um, why wouldn't you be using that schematic where it's only 10 million bucks back then uh, to go for the big pie in the sky if money's what you're after, which we know it's more than money. Don't we? It's uh, it's influencing minds. You can see why Spielberg was such a powerhouse in Hollywood. Here's another one I just looked up. E.T. is from 82, had a $10.5 million budget, and the box office was $792.9 million. So good grief. The amount of money they're putting into these things for the return, that doesn't happen anymore. They're putting hundreds of millions of dollars into these CGI fests, and yeah, they're making money, but they're not making that kind of money. Or they were until they decided to kill the uh, entirety of theater. Well, people should understand that what's happened, like when you go back to the original Star Wars, that's a real desert that's being filmed there. And even though spaceships don't exist like that, those are real objects being filmed. Those are models. So it's tangible things on film. Uh, By the time you get up to the computer age, you've been led further into fantasy because nothing exists now. Those are electrons on the head of a pin. Um, and it's rare when people shoot on location. So what you're looking at in a movie that's all CGI driven is your mind's being completely hauled into a fantasy based reality just to make the point. And that's an important distinction that people don't think is important, but it's critically important. If you go back and look at the movies like Godfather, like Lawrence of Arabia, those that's real places in the world were filmed there. And not only that, the the story was required to push those along, as it was in Star Wars, as it was in Close Encounters. As you leave that behind and get into the digital narrative, you'll notice that the storylines are lacking. And then it starts to become all glam glitz and explosions and everything else is driving uh, the interest. So it really is kind of lowering the human mindset to pull you that far into film. It's like what VR will be when it gets here. When people start putting on those goggles and the world they're in there just seems a little better than the real one they just left. Um, fantasy-based reality, conversion. Yeah. The original Star Wars also has a budget of $11 million, according to this article, and made $775.8 million. So again, we're talking these astronomical numbers. Yeah, yeah that's for- a huge return on investment. Uh, you got to keep that in mind. This was a huge return on investment for these people. And this why, is what why enabled wouldn't that them be to... the template, Wayne? That's what I'm saying. Right. Why wouldn't that be the template? We only need 10 million to go for this. Yeah, because well, I would argue that the point of that being is like they they don't use that as the template because that's not their prime concern anymore. Is the actual return on investment? It's more about what kind of programming can we put out into the public consciousness. That's right. what I would argue is the difference. And control, I would also say, because if they started using the $10 million template, that would open up the door to a lot of other people who could invest in the making of a picture for not that much money comparatively, when in fact they've gone the other way. It's hundreds of millions of dollars most times now. And like when you see a picture now, you ever watch the credits go by? It is unreal how many computer techs, animators, just the list go on and on and on. It's sometimes it's thousands of people. Um, that's a lot of money just to pay all those people. Absolutely. Well, there's multiple special effects houses pulled in on all these, let's say the Marvel movies, for instance. There's multiple houses pulled in for all different sections. So yeah, all those people you're seeing, 
they're primarily computer techs of some form, really. Yep. And I would say that this is largely to keep the control of the Hollywood studios and stuff in in the hands of these large major studios. That's what that's about. That's why the huge massive budgets to make a film so that your small independent filmmakers with barely a, a budget to work with don't really get much traction even though they they can and have produced films that are better than what the blockbusters in in Hollywood have produced. They still don't have the marketing campaign behind it like these major Hollywood studios do. So they don't have the access that they do to the, the theaters and to uh, public distribution. So that, that tells me that keeps the control in the hands of just very few corporations that run the whole scene. So that, that's what that is about. That's why I would say it's so expensive to produce a, a, a Hollywood film at this point. Well, the general rule of thumb now is you spend whatever the budget for the film is, you spend that again on the PR. So just think about that for an Iron Man movie or whatever it happens to be. You're talking hundreds of millions of dollars on PR. Well, there's another thing that gets overlooked that most people that aren't as old as dirt like I am have missed in the transition of movies. It used to be that the best movies had to be congruent. Um, They couldn't stretch the imagination too, too far. And if they were going in a fantasy realm, um, they tried to rig it together so that there weren't glaring holes. But what's happened is we've gone into like the Marvel universe, which is wholly made in a computer. It's completely unrealistic. And yet people are buying into it because they've made the agreement in their mind. This is a fantasy world. This is all made in a computer. Nothing I'm looking at was filmed in the real world. Um, All the things they're looking at, but the storyline is It's Swiss cheese, basically. There is no congruency or common sense, even to use the example of something like uh, Thor as an example. He goes from the god that can't really have his butt kicked to this pathetic dude that can't seem to get anything right to a drunk to, and it goes on and on. And you can look at each of the characters and see the incongruent nature of how they're molding the minds. And so in that, I mean, we could do a whole film on what, why they did that with Thor. That's mind warping right there. That's playing with genders. It's doing all kinds of things. But the point I would make is when you pull that far over into fantasy, where not a single pixel of what you're looking at is based in reality, um, it's much easier to lose the thread of any need to even fake like there's a congruent story being told. Right. It loses the connection to the real world, and that's exactly what they're looking for. Which is what exactly what has to happen in your mind for enough people to keep coming back. And as we've shown in our modern era in these last 20 years, which is like bizarro world for people that are my age, there's nothing about the last 20 years that resembles the world we had. As a matter of fact, to the point where the world we had seems like ultimate freedom even though we know damn well it wasn't. It seems that way in comparison to now. So with the Marvel movies becoming the biggest thing in the world, when you begin to scrutinize the kind of psychology and the effects of what's being done there, you begin to realize we're headed for a fantasy-based reality. This is the tee-up for, I don't know, Ready Player One, this VR world, or whatever it will be. So all these questions and more we will explore in order to find the root archetypes that this modern-day mythology represents. We will attempt to break down the occult and esoteric ideas symbolized by the characters, names, places, and plot details in the various storylines of the Star Wars saga. It's all you, Wayne, if you got anything. 
Yeah, man. We'll begin to see as we go through this how a lot of these different characters' names and the stories and stuff like that in the Star Wars universe break down to these occult ideas. And we'll we'll explore that and we'll bring that to the forefront here as we go forward when we get down to the bullet points here. Uh, I think the next part will start with just Luke Skywalker in general and we'll move on from there. Does he walk through the sky? Let's get into this, Jason. I got to find out. <laughs> The story of Luke Skywalker is replete with hidden esoteric meanings. First, his name, Luke, being a derivative of Lucifer. Skywalker is symbolic of the journey of the sun in the acceptable year of the Lord. Many of the characters represent various aspects of the sun's journey across the sky. The sun walks across the sky daily. This idea invokes the mythological archetypes of Egyptian cosmology, the Osirian Cycle. The story of Osiris, Isis, and Horus are heavily reflected in the Star Wars franchise. Damn, look at McCroy busting a move. It's all you, dude. Yeah, man. Well, if you look at Skywalker, what walks across the sky every day, guys? Well, that would be the sun, wouldn't it? And this is exactly the archetype they're looking for. And uh, this harkens back to the Egyptian cosmology. Once again, when you look at the Osirian cycle, that's the story of Osiris, Isis, and Horus. And... Uh, how the sun's daily machinations across the sky work. It starts in the morning as the, the newly born sun, which would be the equivalent of Horus. And uh, by the midday sun, it enters at noontime the height of its power as Osiris. And at the end of the day, the sun sets. And that's, that's an important word there, set. We'll get to that later uh, in the Egyptian mythos. But the sun sets indicating the the death of Osiris. And then it starts the cycle of darkness being nighttime. And what rules the night? The moon, right? Well, the moon represents Isis. Uh, this is the doctrine reflected by Isis of the initiates, okay? So this, this is all about initiation into the mysteries. And this is what this talks about. And it uses the sun as the primary archetype for this. So you could see uh, written in the sky are all of these different things. And, and peoples throughout the ages have told these stories in different manners and methods and mythologies based upon the things they see in the sky. And these are encoded right in the sky. Like all of these different stories, they're, they're there. If you watch, if you watch the sky for any length of time over the course of a year, You'll see all these things happen year after year after year. And that, a lot of times, is the message that a lot of these stories convey. And there are deeper spiritual meanings and stuff involved with it, but it's all right there. It's, it's the drama of the ages unfolding in the sky. And that's basically where we're at with the sky clock here. Uh, it tells all of these different stories just written in the stars. And it's never changed through all of human history. And that's kind of uh, a weird thing if you accept the cosmology that, uh, quote-unquote, science hands us. Because wouldn't you think the star patterns in the skies would have changed by now if we're flying through the universe at like a million miles an hour, spinning faster than a bullet in all different <laughs> directions at once? Don't get logical here, dude. Whoa, they're dangerous thinking there, boy. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get tied up <laughs> on, on the cosmology aspect of it there well, as far as that goes. But think about it. Everything, it's written in the stars. It's been there for time immemorial. And these stories are told over and over again in different ways. So let's do the spoiler alert. I would go so far as to say is all these old tales from any culture that mattered. And I shouldn't say that because every culture 
but the ones that made it for a significant period of time to contribute things about the cultures of the world. We know it's all foundationally based on the sky clock. And if you don't believe me, go take out your cell phone, get your little constellation app and point it up anywhere in the sky. And what are you going to see? You're going to see a character. You're going to see an archetype. Hercules is there. And by the way, the M13 globular cluster is in Hercules. You're going to see Pegasus. You're going to see Orion. You're going to see the dog that follows Orion. You're going to see story after story after story that has been told so many times that you will begin to realize the story that you are currently seeing is just simply the oldest one that became popular for us. Probably Greek, probably Arab, maybe Chaldean, if there's such a place. These are where we got these ideas, and um, that's the proof in the pudding here. Why wouldn't these stars be, you know, a shape of what they looked like, as an example? Like, oh, that shape kind of looks like that, so we'll make that a constellation. Not what's going on here. Matter of fact, I can't think of but two or three constellations that even start to resemble what they're supposed to be. The scorpion is one, because it has the nice curly tail thing going on, but other than that, it doesn't resemble a scorpion. There's a couple. So... Just to underscore what Wayne's saying, um, what we're getting here is we have an Egyptian cosmology. Mostly we follow maybe Arab ideas and Greek ideas about the sky clock in our time. But the Egyptians apparently did it before that. Someone else did it before that. And guess who did it in 1977, if you're following the thread? Absolutely. And just to add to what you're saying about the constellations, you look up, you see a constellation that looks kind of like a trapezoid. Well, that's clearly a bear. (laughs) Like, think about that for a second. (laughs) That's also Hercules. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's like, it's astounding just how people put these these connections together, the little connect the dot strategy. uh, This represents this. Okay, I'm not seeing it, but all right, we'll take your word for it. We we need to take it a step further, though, Wayne. So why was that trapezoid named Ursa Major or Minor? It's called the Big Dipper. You know why? Because it looks like a Big Dipper, but nowhere is that the name of anything official. Maybe they call it an asterism or something. My point is, is you're looking at Ursa Major mostly or Ursa Minor. You go over to Hercules. It's a similar thing. looks like a box. Sagittarius looks like a teapot of all things. So why are these things Hercules? Why is that Sagittarius? Well, it's simple because Sagittarius has a story. We can look it up in mythology. So now the entirety of the rolling of the sky tells us a tale. And so allegorized in these myths for Sagittarius, for Ursa, for Orion, for any of them, there is underlying narratives that have levels after levels after levels of meaning, just like the Holy Bible has level after level after level of meaning. Some of it has to do with the truths that nature, the way nature works. Some of it has to do with human beings are special and they can take a higher path and apparently get out of here. The ideas go on and on, but I think we should be very clear. Why is that square looking thing in the sky called Hercules or Pegasus? There it is. That's why, because there's a narrative. They could have called it the great box in the sky and it would have looked like the great box in the sky, but they didn't. They attached the storyline of Hercules to it. And there's a reason. Many of the archetypal ideas of Star Wars harken back to the Egyptian mysteries. We will explore the various aspects of how the Star Wars story reflects these ideas that reached their pinnacle in the Egyptian mysteries. Many esotericists claim that the Egyptian mystery teachings were the most profound and represent the perfection of the ancient mystery schools. 
<laughs> I'm going to kick it over to Wayne. Maybe I should call you Jed for this episode. What do you think? <laughs> nah, I don't know about that. But You, you uh, don't want to be Jed? Okay. <laughs> no, nah, I don't want to be Jed. What about Jedi? Well, no, we'll, we'll get that to that later. Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> Wasn't there a Jed? Go ahead. There was a Jed, I think, with the Beverly Hillbillies. But, Jed, uh, yep. And Jethro yeah. too? Jethro too, yeah. And Jethro Toll. That's a different story, though. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, Star Wars harkens back to the ancient Egyptian mysteries, and a lot of uh, people who study these things claim that the mystery schools and the mystery teachings really found their perfection in the Egyptian cosmology and the Egyptian mythology stories. Uh, So that's why you'll see uh, a lot of different institutions today, secret societies and whatnot, harken back to Egypt in a lot of their symbology and their, their motivations and stuff. The Freemasons in particular, they have actual rites that harken back to Egyptian times. Uh, these are the rites of um, Memphis and the rites of Mizraim. And uh, there's an actual whole Egyptological uh, section of Freemasonry. I mean, there's different degrees and stuff uh, within Freemasonry that look at these Egyptian ideas in earnest. And uh, also, we see the same thing, uh, the symbolism all over in government institutions and things like that. It's on the back of your dollar bill. There's a pyramid on the back of your dollar bill. That's there for a reason. There's also an eagle. This finds its way back to Egypt as well. I mean, all of these ideas are rooted in ancient Egypt. So we'll see. There's there's other symbols on the back of our money and stuff, too, that we'll get to later that also directly relate to what we're talking about here today. So we'll get to that as well. But th- that's the thing. This is why we bring up the Egyptian mystery teachings here is because this was the model for a lot of these different modern secret societies and stuff to use for the mystery teachings. And there's a lot of information encoded in the Egyptian mythology. And this is one of the more well-studied and well-known ones in the modern world because of things like Egyptology that have come up. Uh, People have found these pyramids and things so fascinating that they've made entire schools of sciences devoted to studying these things and archaeological digs and things of that sort. And in so doing, they also have mystical schools that teach these things about the mystical teachings of Egypt and stuff like that, too. And it all kind of harkens back to that time when the Egyptians ruled the world. So this is what they they harken back to a lot of times in a lot of these modern teachings because it's it's laid out probably most simply and succinctly in a lot of the ancient mystery teachings of the Egyptians. Well, the the other thing is anyone who looks at anything Egyptian, although I take umbrage with much of the stuff we're shown, that's almost like an archetype because we all have this idea as soon as we see something Egyptian, well, that's a mystery wrapped in an enigma, right? We all kind of share that point of view whether we want to or not. It's almost like meeting someone new. What is it that allows two people that have just met to hit it off? Like they're they're unsure, they're trying to meet each other. Oh, can I buy you an ice cream? Okay, what kind do you want? Pistachio. Hey, pistachio is my favorite ice cream. Now you've got something in common. And really that's the power of an archetype, right? Because that's embedded in your subconscious. And so you have that in common with everybody, by the way. And Also, that's another good reason to ditch out the sky clock teachings, because probably there was a time when everyone was so attached to what was going on in the sky that when you met a human being in the world, you had that in common from the get go, no matter where you were from. So do you understand what goes on in this world that they have to make us appear and feel different? And so this group will share these ideas. Maybe you're all blue, you're all red, you know, to to divide you off for division and control point is there are things in this world that go far beyond the ability of anyone to divide and control and the sky clock is one of those things what do you mean you haven't seen star wars 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, see that precisely, Jason. You hit it. I, right I can actually say right that, there. Jason. The last Star Wars I saw was the one where they killed the old guys, Han Solo. I have not seen a one since that, and don't care to. Don't bother. Yeah, it's not worth it. <laughs> they really kind of crapped all over the story at that point. But there's a reason for that too, and maybe we'll touch a little on that. Uh, when I put these notes together, I, I intended it basically just as a review of like the first Star Wars movie and maybe the the two sequels that uh, came out from that one. Uh, not necessarily touching too much on the, on the prequels or the or the new uh, trilogy that they came out with, because there's there's different ideas encoded in all of them. And honestly, if we were to sit and break it all down, it would be hours upon hours upon hours of material there to cover. So. Uh, I wanted to try and make it as succinct as possible here, but uh, just as kind of an aside to talk about uh, what you're saying about the Egyptian society and stuff like that, the Egyptian culture becoming synonymous with uh, the mythological, the mysterious, the unknown. Uh, think about this. When we see unknown writings or something, what do we refer to it as? Oh, that's a bunch of hieroglyphics. Well, there you go. The term Egyptian has become synonymous with the unknown or the mystery involved with it. And that's an archetype as well. And that's an archetype that's stuck with us because of the impact the Egyptian society has had upon cultures moving forward through time. Not only that, it's written into the Bible, isn't it, right? Um, but we, yep. we, I guess before we move on, we should point out uh, whether or not money was still king in 1977. I suspect it actually was at that time. Uh, money is not king now. What's king is data and influence. And the reason I added influence, and I'll make the point so that you understand that it's true, what does data give you, right? Data gives you influence. There are the ability to skew things in a direction. It's a little bit like what we're all experiencing now with the influenza, right? <laughs> the influenza has become the biggest influence that I've ever seen in my, in my lifetime. And so that's another element that we've got to consider when we go through these things. Um, truly, was money the main concern, as we're all told? Or is that just a front? Was the influence and the archetyping of all this and where they could go and how they could change culture, was that more important? I can't answer it, but I know it's a possibility. So for the last point for hour one, let's get into the elements of the hero's journey. There are 12 of them. Step one, ordinary world. Step two, the call to adventure. Step three, the refusal of the call. Step four, meeting the mentor. Step five, crossing the threshold. Step six, tests, allies, enemies. Step seven, approach to the inmost cave. Step eight, the ordeal. Step nine, reward or seizing of the sword. Step 10, the road back. Step 11, resurrection. And step 12, return with the elixir. <laughs> now, the six original George Lucas Star Wars movies follow this template. And one of the reasons a lot of people have figured out that the newer Disney movies really aren't that good is because they discard the hero's journey almost entirely. They're actually quite boring when you break them down. Well, that's, again, that's pulling us towards fantasy, right? The reason that the hero's journey exists is because we can take all these archetypes that have come to us through times, which have meaning and they matter, or they wouldn't have come through time this far, and we notice this commonality. And when we notice this commonality, we began to say, well, this can happen to human beings, 
I'm a human being, right? And so we begin to realize that what's really being told here is a life in the natural world can or will experience these things under certain conditions. And that locks lock, stock, and barrel to the sky clock. As a matter of fact, when we want to go to number 11 there, the idea of resurrection, that's going to happen every day. The sun is going to go to set, count the ways if you wish, and then it will rise again the next morning. It's one example of the encoding of death and, and rebirth that's been used in all these stories that have to do with the sky clock. As a matter of fact, so many of the deaths in the stories of mythological figures is actually just their constellation going over the horizon where it can never be seen anymore. This is actually in the Bible. But let's make the, the overall point here. How many elements are in the hero's journey? There's 12. Well, why is that? For the same reason, there's 12 hours on your clock for one revolution. For the same reason that there are 12 signs of the Zodiac. For the same reason that there are 12 apostles, that there are 12 knights at the round table. I mean, I could go on and on and on. That is why. Because these archetypes tap into something that is in us all, and it's not made up. There is a reality underneath all of this that will refashion itself over and over and over in our lives and the lives that follow ours that will make it real, a part of being alive under the sky clock in this world. And so, as Jason pointed out, people have taken the time to take apart the later Star Wars. They don't give a crap about the hero's journey anymore. You know why? Because they've gone into a make-believe computer in a make-believe world where not one damn thing is real, and they're going for the fantasy run. Because if they can pull the majority of minds into a total fantasy-based reality, what can be done at that point? What would you add, Wayne? I would add that that's basically the whole point here, and I think that's the whole purpose of the uh, later Star Wars trilogy, the the more recent ones, uh, to pull people's mind into fantasy, and uh, it kind of eliminates the whole need for the, the story or the archetype. And this is actually a hearkening of a new age, because these things mattered to us in the old age, but in the new age, uh, these different ideas like the hero's journey aren't going to matter as much, because it is an age of uh, high technology, for one thing, and it's also the age of air, where there's no actual, nothing solid to, to latch onto uh, when it comes down to it. And, and that's the distinction there. And that is why I think... Uh, the last uh, Star Wars movie in the new trilogy was called The Rise of Skywalker, because once again, it encapsulates the ideas of we're moving into this age of air uh, where, you know, uh, the material things are not going to be as noticeable nowadays or not going to be held in as high of esteem or value as they once were. And that includes things like um, what I would call foundational ideas and foundations are something that Basically, you build in the earth, so there's a different idea altogether from the air idea. So these foundational archetypes, like the hero's journey, these do not have as much importance or as much focus in the age of air. And that, I think, is one of the, the reasons why they, they took the Star Wars trilogy and crapped all over it in the more recent years. Because this reflects this idea, the, the, the digital world. That's basically what it is, the artificial digital world. You know, now that I'm scrutinizing this again, it's been a while since I've looked at the hero's journey. Just the existence of the hero's journey almost gives us the promise that times like this, where so many people think that's it, we've lost, we can't get back. Well, no, look, look at this. 
this comes us through comes this these ideas come to us through all time that we can be aware of and at the end they're going to return with the elixir the hero as a matter of fact i remember i don't know 10 15 years ago understanding that i was looking uh when i used to Back in the day, search videos, I could see people in authority, and it almost appeared to me that they were begging for a hero to come along because we're in trouble here. And even us supposed people in charge, we can't steer the boat anymore. Boat's going where the boat's going. This, in a way, is a promise that what we're experiencing is just another cycle. Yeah, the sun's going to go down. It's going to be dark for a while. Guess what? There's going to be another sunrise, but there's more. As I learned for the first time, well, I, I actually saw it a lot of times. I just didn't understand it before Downard, before James Shelby Downard. Apparently, in every single age change, the symbol for androgyny or both sexes or hermaphrodite—they call it androgyny—but it's basically a hermaphroditic figure when it's encoded in like Masonic woodcuts and all these other things you see. But this has preceded masonry by a long ways. This androgynous figure is always comes to be prominent at every age change and how does that fit what we're doing now so the question becomes is there somebody in some dark castle somewhere saying all right boys whip out the androgyny we're going to do this or is it something else and i would suggest to you that it is something else there may be some of that in there but the point is what the hero's journey promises is we'll be okay in the long run you know some crap's going to happen here but crap has always happened and it always will happen. Jason, what would you add before I wrap up? Well, that's just it. The hero's journey is the promise of a better tomorrow. It's the story and the concept of enlightenment coming from someone from a beginning or a lower place. But by the end, the cycle has been completed and they are at a higher place. To transfer this on to Star Wars, the original trilogy is really three heroes' journeys. It's the story of Luke Skywalker, and in each of the three films, he definitely goes through a hero's journey, but the overall trilogy is also one great big hero's journey about Luke Skywalker, starting from the farm boy and ending as the return of the Jedi. Just to add to what we're talking about here, whenever there is this age change, we do see many of these same archetypes pop up, and I think that's where we're at right now. And the hero's journey, I would say, is a cyclical map for this process of the changing over of the age, in addition to just being the, the you know, encoding of the different ordeals of life. And I would say right now we're probably in step eight of the hero's journey, the ordeal. And uh, that's kind of, I, I think, where we've come to, somewhere between stage seven and stage eight there for most people. And uh, we could see, I mean, at the other side, there will be reward and a road back and a resurrection and new things. So, I mean, there is that promise that good will come out of this and good will prevail. It's just a matter of, you know, we're in that tough phase right now, that ordeal. And that's uh, where we're at. I would say that this uh, whole idea encapsulates the cyclical nature of our world. And uh, this is something I think that many of the esotericists understand and many of the people in control understand that uh, this is a necessary part of the cycle of the age change. We have stated so many times that one of the first things that happens when societies are going to be subjugated or a run to take them over a matter, they got to be removed from nature. We've pointed out how with the Vatican, it became the pagans. Oh, those idiot pagans, those evil pagans. Oh, those guys are sinners. Oh, you know what? Pagans need to be burned at the stake. The word pagan means someone who lives in nature, basically, in a broad sense. 
So there is the subjugation from nature. And here's the thing. When you understand that the sky clock matters, then you understand what is influencing nature as above, so below. When you understand how nature works, the fear that has been instilled in a world with influence, uh, it doesn't work anymore. And as an example of that, you get to fall and man, what's going on here? The trees are not green. Why are the trees all red and yellow? Oh, the, all leaves fell off the trees. Oh my God, all the trees are dying. What the hell's going on here? Every tree I can see is dead. The trees are dead. We're screwed. The trees are never coming back. But a person in nature understands that the trees die every year, that the sun dies every year, so to speak, and it's coming back around. And at the root of it all, all you need to do is ask yourself, is a human life special? Because if it is, how can it be subjugated so easily by bad apples in the barrel or whatever you would attribute it to? Because if that is possible, then human beings are not that damn special. They're like bunny rabbits. Someone can kick them. Someone can do them wrong. Someone could eradicate them if they wanted. And I'm here to tell you that I don't accept it. We're the apex here. I'm making an image for Athens right now where I put the world, our world, at the center of everything. Not the sun, our world. Because that's where we are. We are the reason for this place. So how is it that if we're the reason for this place, we could be so easily subjugated? We can have tough times and other things. But anyhow, that brings hour one of episode 289 to a close. we got so much to get through in hour two, which will be at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777, radio.com. And truly, um, look around. Have you seen androgyny? Because I sure have. I think we've come through most of the age change, and now we're normalizing into what's going to be next. So I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.
enemies of knowing. <laughs>